0: Hello and welcome to Living a Culture of Life podcast by Human Life International. I'm your host, Colleen, and I'm joined today by John Clark. Welcome.
1: Hi, Colleen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for
0: being on today. And today we're going to be discussing your new book, Betrayed Without a Kiss. Let me get the the subtitle correct. Defending Marriage After Years of Failed Leadership in the Church. And that's a really big topic. What motivated you to write about this in the first place?
1: Yeah, so originally uh, a friend came to me probably... I want to say three or four years ago, he was having some difficulties with his marriage and looked like a divorce might be on the horizon. And he came to me for some advice. And that's when I really started looking into what's the status of marriage these days, right? What is, what is the, what's going on in the church? And until that point, um, you know, we, you know, as a Catholic, I went to Christendom college, studied, you know, sacramental theology with Dr. William Marshner, thought I knew things pretty well. Um, but one of the things that disturbed me was when I started looking around and looking at the, the annulment numbers, they're very troubling. And I'll probably get into more specifics of that a little bit later, but just to broadly answer your question for now, it looked as though there was a problem with annulments and what was going on at the church with annulments. And then the number of marriages was down quite considerably. And so, um, but to answer your question, that's what started the process of me that ended up in a book. I didn't set out. You know when he said john can you help me i didn't say yeah and i'll write a book it was just that that sort of happened this so the book is basically a result of what i discovered in researching trying to help my friend
0: interesting and so before we dive into the whole content of the book can you just clarify what annulment is versus what a divorce is for people listening i think a lot of people listening to the podcast probably have a general idea but i think it's good to kind of clarify that at the outset so people can understand this conversation
1: that is a good that's a good point so annulment which which we should probably call a finding of nullity okay is a discovery process whereby a marriage that was once considered valid is deemed to have never been okay so so nullity is is about the wedding day like what you know we go they'll try to go back and, and look at the wedding day the, so um, that is an that, that's fi- finding what was considered to be a marriage, not to have ever taken place. There was never a marriage. That's what a finding of nullity means. It doesn't mean that there was a marriage, but now there's not, mm-hmm. it means there was never a marriage, a divorce. So that's an ecclesiastical process. Mm-hmm. A divorce by contrast is a civil, uh, it's, it's a civil case, mm-hmm. right? So a divorce is simply the state, uh, coming in and saying, no, this marriage is dissolved. Um, those, that's the difference. So an annulment is that a marriage never was a divorce is a civil thing saying that there was a marriage, uh, but, um, there isn't one now because it's being dissolved by one or both parties.
0: So an annulment is not just Catholic divorce. It's a statement that the marriage never occurred in the first place.
1: Yes, but I would put an asterisk to that. Um, and that kind of gets to the, to the, the heart of one of these problems is that an annulment is not Catholic divorce. Yes, end of sentence and a paragraph. Okay, the problem now is, and one of the discoveries, one of the things I found out to try to figure out what's really going on, why what's happening to marriage is that every diocese in America that I'm aware of requires civil divorce paperwork before a marriage tribunal can even convene.
0: Whoa, why, you- right,
1: and so. Okay, now that's a great question. That's what I was wondering. So there are basically two answers. The first one is is that the church, the dioceses, are worried about what's called uh, alien. It, it falls under the, the the case of alienation of affection. Alienation of affection is sort of held over from common law, and essentially it goes like this. So let's say that um, my wife and I are having troubles in our marriage. And uh, someone convinced her to divorce me. Every time he saw her, he kept, you know, insisting, you should just leave John. Okay. She also gets the divorce. Theoretically, I could sue him for alienation of affection. To say, you know, she wouldn't have left me if you hadn't been constantly saying she should leave me. Mm -hmm. Right. So theoretically, the church is worried about, these are actually called, uh, uh, it's called a home wrecker laws, someone who sort of instigated the divorce. So, in the first instance, the church is worried about that. That, well, if we find an annulment, if this diocese uh, finds an annulment, we could theoretically be liable for a suit of alienation of affection. Okay, so that, that's the logic behind it. But I discovered something very interesting there are 50 states in America. That's no news flash. Uh, 44 states don't have any alienation of affection laws in the books. That is, you can't file a case because it's not a law in those states. So only in six states do alienation of affection laws exist. Only six. And in those six, corporations, like churches, are never sued. So the whole idea that dioceses are worried about alienation of affection suits they're worried about a phantom it, it doesn't exist and so th- that's the first that's the first uh, uh, uh that's the first explanation they give does that make sense yes it does okay in other words does it make sense Insofar far as it doesn't make sense yeah. okay the second instance that dioceses give is that they'll say well a civil divorce. If somebody walks in with a civil divorce paperwork, they have other divorce decree. That serves as proof that this couple just can't get along. They've tried to reconcile; it didn't work. Okay. Here's the problem. So in America, we have unilateral, no fault divorce. Mm-hmm. So, so if my wife, so if if my wife um, wants to leave me, I should stop using our. Uh, Ours is an example because I'm in a, I'm in a storybook marriage. Um, I always say I've had a crush on my wife since Reagan was in office. But a wife wants to leave her husband. Mm-hmm. She doesn't need to do anything other than just file a unilateral divorce and say she, you know, she wants out. Uh, she doesn't need to talk to her husband. She she can just leave. So in that scenario, are we looking at a real life example of two people who sat down but couldn't work things out? No. In many cases, we're not looking at that at all. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's rather shocking that the dioceses will say, well, they tried. Um, 70, something like 70% of divorces in America are, are truly unilateral in the sense that 70% of the time, the other spouse did not want a divorce. So both of the examples that the dioceses give are really bad. And so again, then they sit down in front of the marriage tribunal and there's an extraordinarily high probability that they will uh, have a finding of nullity, and that's that's kind of where it all starts.
0: Interesting. What's the problem with them requiring a divorce, a civil divorce, before looking at the marriage? Is there a problem with that, or is it just that they're being extra cautious about something that they don't need to worry about?
1: Well, again, they're worried. they wor- one of the things they're worried about doesn't exist, as, as I mentioned, and the second one is is that they're thinking it's been attempted to reconcile. Mm-hmm. So what what would what is humanity? Let's back out the fact that we're talking about the Catholic church, which is the guardian of the sacrament of reconciliation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So let's just say that this is sort of a, a non church body Okay. looking at a husband and wife, just looking at it from the perspective of humanity. Wouldn't you try to reconcile the couple? That would seem to be a natural place to start, but the time. But by contrast, with a system that exists, by the time they sit down for uh, the, the hearing for the marriage tribunal, they have a divorce in hand. Mm-hmm. And so remember the key thing about the difference between uh, you know, you start off with a really excellent question what's the difference between annulment and divorce? While annulment isn't divorce, the annulment process requires divorce. And the large problem is, in large measure, God hates divorce. It's in the book of Malachi. I mean, God hates divorce. I don't think this is any news flash to people listening. God hates divorce, right? Mm-hmm. I probably can't say that too many times because the problem is, so, so when the diocese are saying, no, go and do something that God hates, and then we'll hear your case. Mm-hmm. And so let's say for the sake of argument that uh, a couple goes in and wants to get you know they want let's say they both you know want to get their annulment and they think no this was never valid Mm -hmm. well the problem is is that um what in what happens in the case of that couple who got the civil divorce paperwork i mean a contentious divorce in america is going to run upwards of a hundred thousand dollars it's not cheap um so they've drained their 401ks or drained their savings accounts they're at the they're at the the table to hear the tribunal and let's say the judges come back and they say, no, your marriage is actually valid. We're not going to grant you the, the decree of nullity. Now, what do you do? Well, you used to have a lot of money, but let's say $100,000 for the sake of argument is a lot of money. And what do you do? You could have used that for your kid's college. You could have used it for food, rent, um, things like that. Instead, the money was used uh, for divorce lawyers. Then what do you do? Do you get remarried by the state? I guess you would have to. But again, there are laws precluding you from doing that in some cases. So the whole thing is disastrous. And so effect what's happening is, is that the church is waiting in terms of the adjudication of, the, of a sacrament. Mm-hmm. The dioceses are waiting for, the civil, uh, for, a, for a civil action to occur. That, to me, is about as backwards as it gets. They should be they should be saying, okay, first of all, when they come in, they were having problems in a marriage. Try to reconcile them. That's in many cases, it's not happening. It does happen some of the time, in fairness, but in a lot of cases, it's not. But like we're not gonna have this until we get the divorce paperwork in hand. It's it's as backward as it gets.
0: So from my understanding, a church assumes that a marriage is valid until proven otherwise, basically. What mm-hmm. are the grounds for annulment or a de- declaration of nullity, um, in the church.
1: So, if you go to canon law, uh, again, a really good question. If you go to canon law, there are a number of of things that uh, could result in a finding of nullity, but that would be a really long discussion. But I, but it's important uh, to highlight that typically now, the jurisprudence is centered around the psychological incapacity to consent. So it, so it would be. Well, they weren't, they weren't psychologically ready to commit themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that's essentially, that's essentially it. And so right now what you have is, uh, in some churches, they even have this in the back of brochure, in the back of the church, there'll be a brochure about it, about, you know, could you get an annulment, mm-hmm. which has seemed to me to be the, about as imprudent as things can get, because well, I'll answer your question and then come back to that. But so, so essentially, the idea is is that they weren't psychologically prepared. Okay, um, that's almost impossible. I mean, from a legal perspective, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. I would say that in the church, if the idea is that well, there was a, there was just so much immaturity from from that person. Well, the church allows marriage at the ages of fourteen and sixteen, right? By canon law. So, essentially, what you're saying is no. She didn't have the average maturity of a a 14-year-old. In other words, the church is not demanding some – we don't have to have PhDs in theology. I guess it would be nice if we did, but we don't need to have PhDs in theology to understand, okay, fidelity, uh, permanence, openness to children. These are basic, and I would challenge the priests who were marrying them in the first place, if they really weren't, why was the priest marrying them? I mean, if we have any sort of marriage prep, and we'd still do. I mean, most—I di- don't know of a diocese that doesn't require something in the way of marriage prep. Mm-hmm. Essentially, that—that's that, the problem. And so there's—and so when you leave this open to, especially in a world where there's so much psycho babble going on, right? Uh, was he? You know, was this person mental Were they prepared? Were they? You know, where were they? You know, and by the way, in some cases, thirty-five years ago, was Bill ready? Thirty. Really, because for 35 years, Bill and his wife thought this was this was a valid marriage. Mm-hmm. So 35 years later, but but to me, one of the the problems the problem is is that we is that many dioceses are in effect pushing annulments because there were brochures, and I would justify that statement by saying that there were brochures for annulments at the back of churches. Mm-hmm. Imagine for a moment that happening with any other sacrament. Imagine walking into your local parish. And you see a brochure that says, was your baptism valid? Uh, That's a really good way to make people like hyper scrupulous, right? Like, I don't know. I, I was there. Do I remember it really well? No. I don't know the name of the priest that baptized me, right? Was your confirmation valid? Was your first confession valid? Right. And so this is why. You know, you mentioned that, that uh, marriage is a presumed valid unless and it's still proven otherwise. Well, that's true for all the sacraments, right? So we, we're proceeding as though the marriage never was in a lot of these cases. And I will add that divorce is an industry in America. Like oil is an industry, like software is an industry, like food is an industry. Divorce is an industry. And all the money is on the side of divorce. There's no money on my, like, my job in writing this book was to try to write a love letter to the sacrament of matrimony. Mm -hmm. There's no money on my side, right? It's all on the other side. It's all on the side of divorce. Divorce, Inc. That's what we have in America.
0: Okay, so the big question that kind of came up to me while I was reading through your book was... From my understanding, if a couple does not understand what marriage entails, like they don't know that they have to be open mm-hmm. to children or they don't know that marriage is for life in the church, the mar- that is a reason for getting an annulment. Is that correct?
1: If they didn't know? No, I would say it like this. if They're not, abs- so there'd be a difference in, so if you think it'd go back to somebody's wedding day, right? Um, let's try to think about this. So, um... You would have to be open to life. Mm-hmm. That is true. You, there would have, be, have to be openness to life.
0: Does um, like it have to be
1: front and center? Like,
0: for instance, a couple who has a prenup is they mm-hmm. have like an intention going into the marriage that they're expecting it not to last or that there's a possibility that it won't last. So they're entering the marriage without a full understand, mm-hmm. like without fully intending when they say those vows to necessarily mean them. That's more of the situation. I would not. That's like what I was. Uh, okay.
1: So. Oh, a prenup. Okay, so in the case of a prenup, I would say this: a prenup does not invalidate a a marriage per se. I mean, a pre a, 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 I should say a prenup per se does not invalidate a marriage. It wouldn't invalidate the, it. Wouldn't invalidate the sacrament. It wouldn't do that. Now, if the prenup said, "This is an open marriage," sure, that would invalidate. I mean, if you're not, you know, if you have no intention of fidelity. If you're getting married on a Friday morning and you have a date with someone else Friday, Saturday night, yeah, sure, that's that would be a pretty that would be a pretty, pretty big signal. Mean, but what's interesting?
0: No, go ahead. I'll. I'll. I'll, I'll
1: <laughs> no, I was gonna say, what's interesting. I was gonna say, what's interesting, Colleen, is that that is not typically what's used as grounds. Okay. It's rare that someone uses that as grounds. So, for instance, one of the grounds would be. Um, Uh, the failure to disclose something of a, of a serious nature that would otherwise, it would be something that, um, let's say the woman wouldn't marry the man because of, okay. So if you're like a fugitive and and you're wanted in like three states for some heinous crimes, but you never told her, yeah, that would be grounds for, for, for finding of nullity. Mm Um, but, but these, are, these are things that aren't really, you're asking a really good question, but, but these aren't things that are typically used as grounds. It's very rare. Okay. It's the psychological thing that is used overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. In fact, Cardinal Burke, who was the former head of the Apostolic Signatura, which is basically the Supreme Court of the Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. he said that the psychological grounds are so often used and so stringently. He says, in effect, he said, People are, everybody's going to start wondering if anybody has a psychological, you know, ability to get married. Am I up to par in terms of where I should be psychologically? So it's a pretty big concern. And that is why this issue, as I mentioned earlier, I have a storybook marriage for 31 years. So so what, is melody, what does it mean in my life? It it means that my marriage might be starting to look at, you know, like I've seen John Clark in interviews, I don't know, psychologically. You know what I mean? So so all of our marriages can be held in suspicion, right? And that's that's a pretty significant problem.
0: That that's, so. that's a fair concern. I guess my question was more that I wonder if the number of annulments is necessarily because the church is granting them when they shouldn't be, or if it's more of a mm-hmm. problem of people going into marriage without adequate marriage prep, where they're going in intending never to have children, like no openness to life at all. They're just looking for a life partner or people going in. Having a prenup that's like has an instance of divorce in it, for example, like oh, if we get divorced, this is who takes what money. This is the wife takes this much, the husband takes that much, or other Mm -hmm. instances where people are going into it not ever having been properly catechized on what they're actually vowing to when they exchange the vows. Mm -hmm. Do you know anything about that? Well, like, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I would look at this. So I would look at this way. I would say that uh, I would look at numbers. I'll look at two numbers that I think are pretty illustrative on this. The the first one is, is that um, in the late 1960s, there were 336 annulments in America. That is every diocese combined, 336 annulments in America in its totality. 20 years later, there were 72,000 annulments in a year. So we learned from, from, call it 350, to 70,000. That's That's a twenty thousand percent increase in one generation, mm-hmm. so there's that. I would use that as one data point we'd have to start saying, well, has human nature changed? Well no, it hasn't so you know these numbers don't work. these numbers simply are completely unjustifiable and I would say that the that the marriage tribunals have gone rogue, and the backing I would say for that statement would be this so uh, if a marriage tribunal. Decides that your marriage was null. There's a right of appeal. Mm-hmm. It's 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 right out there, and a lot and you know many times they are appealed. So uh, Father Murray, uh, who was a uh, he's on the the he's on the EWTN um, with Raymond Arroyo show, the Papal posse He uh, was interviewed about this, and it was a book I reviewed a couple of years ago. But he was on a tribunal in New York. And I believe his figure was that between 90 to 95% of American uh, annulments are overturned at the Roman Rota. So so just so we we understand what that that all means. It means that if it's 95%, it would mean that 19 out of 20 annulment findings of nullity were overturned at the Roman Rota. So if you have a lower court that is overturned 95% of the time, that doesn't speak well for the lower court, right? So if the Supreme Court is over in America, so if the Supreme Court, um, and let's just imagine, I mean, so let's imagine we have pretty conservative judges, okay? If the Supreme Court is overturning 95% of cases that come out of the you know, the California courts, that, that's not a good sign. And I would say that that's pretty troubling. So to your point, are they overturning too many? Well, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the Roman Rota thinks. The Roman Rota thinks it is yes. And in the book, uh, I have detailed Pope St. John Paul II year after year after year saying, what is going on? Why are there so many annulments? They shouldn't be going on. And he specifically mentions the problem of using psychology as a, uh, as a reason for an annulment finding. Because while it's, sure, while that I'm sure does exist in some of the cases, I, I, I'm, I'm sure of that. But to be constantly looking and thinking, okay, well, look, what boxes can we check? That's the problem. And so, so the Popes have been, you know, Cardinal Burke. I mean, if you go back and look at uh, the, the former, the, you know, the heads of the Apostolic Signatura, they've been in pretty strong agreement on this. America is overturning, it's not just America, but America highlights because, you know, people come here for annulment shopping. Mm-hmm. Um, as I say in the book, I mean, if our dollar is weak, people come to America to shop. If the church in america is weak people come to america for annulments that's what's really going on so while there should be some findings of nullity that's for sure the numbers are staggering so that that's i think that i think that the answer to your question that's a long answer but i think the answer to your question is found in the numbers
0: okay yeah that was just the big thing that jumped out at me is okay is this a problem with the actual granting of annulments or is it a problem with people not being adequately prepared by the church to go into marriage in the first place, to like know what they're getting into. The thesis of your book, you said, was that the church and marriage rise and fall together. Can you describe that a little bit? Because I thought that was a really interesting uh, just statement and observation about the history of marriage and the history of the church.
1: Sure. So I would look at it at this. I would say that the seven sacraments are meant to be symbiotic, meaning that they rise and fall together. So What you have right now, and every, it seems like every day there's a new report that comes out and talks about how um, the number of Catholics who believe in the real presence has actually dropped again. And I don't know what numbers I, you know, I've seen different numbers, but the numbers are alarming. I haven't seen this, I haven't seen one study that I thought, yeah, it's, yeah, it's nearly 100%. That's great. No, it's, it's, it's very low, the percentage of Catholics that believe in the real presence. But to me, where much of that began, is the disbelief in the sacrament of matrimony because either words matter or they don't Mm -hmm. this is my body that either that's either what's really going on right or it's not is this is my body what does that mean do i believe that um i do what's going on does that matter so my my thinking is words matter your sins are forgiven all right this The sacraments rise and fall together In essentially Jesus, um, for lack of a better term, drew it up this way, right? Mm-hmm. So on a, on, a, on a very positive note, I would say this. So um, a few days ago, my wife and I went to mass and uh, we stopped for a cup of coffee and then we went to confession. Our marriage was stronger for that our marriage was strengthened for going to mass, receiving communion together, kneeling down and praying, you know, the prayers of Thanksgiving, going to confession, having our sins absolved. Our marriage is stronger for it. So marriage is nourished by the sacrament. So when we say we live a sacramental life, it nourishes the mar- the, the matrimony. It nourishes the marriage. And so that's, what i'm getting at there but we have to start looking at it as, as all the sacraments matter words matter and we need to realize that if you're going to have that many annulments you will therefore have a, a lack of people believing in the real presence
0: can you expand on that a little bit is that just because you're saying they rise and fall together or is there some direct connection in there that like is it only coming down to the words matter or is there something else that you're seeing there
1: well, again, so it's a question of whether it's a question of whether you're taking the sacrament seriously or not. Oh. When you are, um, yeah. So when you are. Um, I guess I'd say it like this: So if you stand ready to say no, that sacrament wasn't valid; it never was. That's bad. Where does that leave you? I mean, the ideal number of findings of nullity, in some sense, would be zero, right? Now, and I say that as somebody who says, yes, of course, there are some marriages that never were. That's true. There was fraud involved. There was, there was this or that. There was maybe a, a, an issue of form. There was something involved that marriage never was. But even that's not a, that's sad. Mm-hmm. Right. But in the case where you're moving it up to 70,000. And again, let me let me throw another number in there because I think this dro- drives the point home as well. So if we go back to the late 1960s, um, we had uh, over 400,000 weddings a year. Four hundred thousand weddings a year. I think the numbers. I think in uh, nineteen sixty-eight there were four hundred twenty-six thousand weddings. So you you go to nine. You go to I'm sorry, twenty twenty. You have to, you have essentially a few generations later. There were fewer than one hundred thousand weddings in the year twenty twenty. So, we we look at the anomaly numbers again. Three about three fifty to seventy thousand. We look at weddings four hundred thousand to one hundred thousand. These lines are going to cross. I mean, if you simply look at, you know, I worked at Wall Street. I, look, I love to look at charts and graphs. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is a chart and graph that's not good. I mean, this is, my goodness, what happens in a year when we have more annulments and marriages. That's where we are. And so when you're introducing it to people's minds that uh, sacraments can be basically found null in a widespread way, That, I do believe, has an effect on how they're viewing, how people are viewing the rest of the sacraments.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of flesh that out a little bit, because it's a big statement saying that as you have more annulments, you have fewer people believing in the Eucharist. And that's a really interesting Mm -hmm. connection, especially because right now we're still in the year of the Eucharist, though I don't think for not much longer. And or the Eucharist, not the year Mm -hmm. of the Eucharist, the Eucharistic revival in the United States. And I think it's really interesting. Um, observation to kind of come in the middle of that, that maybe we're having, we need this Eucharistic revival because we have a crisis created by our lack of respect, I guess, for marriage or lack of, um, yes, Yeah. there's a word there that I can't think of.
1: <laughs> I think you did beautifully. That's exactly right.
0: <laughs> yeah. You talked in your book about how the Protestant Reformation was kind of based on a collapse of marriage in or their idea of marriage. Cause you have King Henry the eighth wanting a divorce and an annulment that he wasn't allowed mm-hmm. to have and how like mm-hmm. the Protestants don't respect marriage the same way that we do. Can you just talk a little bit about that part of it?
1: Sure. Um, so King Henry the eighth, uh, I'm just, I'll try to tell this in, the relatively it's, it's, it, there's a lot in here about the book mm-hmm. in the book about this, but basically King Henry the eighth, um, was, uh, was married to Catherine of Aragon, uh, and at some point, King Henry VIII uh, wanted to get an annulment. You know, history remembers this as uh, Henry wanted a divorce. He did, but primary, prior to that, mm-hmm. uh, he wanted an annulment. He wanted a declaration from the church that said, no, there's no marriage. And I'll, there's he used sort of this sort of pretzel logic for for, for what his arguments were, which don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But when the church did not find uh did not find nullity and in fact, affirmed the validity of his marriage. Um, then Henry, uh, then he wanted to get the divorce, but had to set up a new church to do it. And that's, you know, setting up the church of England is essentially uh, that goes back. That's essentially the product of the fact that King Henry wanted a divorce. Um, so that, so from there uh, you, it's interesting to remember back to that time because in the book I make an argument that at that time most Catholics had probably never even heard the word nullity, mm-hmm. right? And that, so, so if we think about what just ha- what would happen in Henry VIII, the Pope knew that if he did not find King Henry's marriage null, he would effectively lose England for the Church. He would lose England. That's a pretty big deal. And yet the Pope, we could look back at uh, the Pope not finding nullity as heroic. We could look at it that way. But I think a better way to look at it would be he didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. The marriage was valid. Now, despite the fact that King Henry um, was promiscuous, you know, biographies, bi- the biographers, when I researched this, I, I try to find every biography of Ken- King Henry VIII I could find. They disagree about certain points but all of them agree on this he was incredibly promiscuous mm-hmm. um he then you know put to death you know different you know members of different orders the carthusians most famously put to death uh, bishop john fisher who was the, the great bishop of england that uh, again affirmed the marriage and and I make the point of the book that Bishop John Fisher died to protect matrimony. That's why he died.
0: I liked that you brought that
1: out, Uh, that you
0: had that saints died for the sacrament of marriage. I thought that was a really interesting way of framing their lives.
1: Exactly. Because it it shows a great contrast and not in a good way. Uh, It shows a, a huge contrast between where we are now and where we were then, because now it's like, well, We want to get people back to the sacraments and we, we, so let's try to see if we can possibly get this marriage annulled. Um, That's not, I mean, so imagine this, imagine. So we started off by speaking a little bit about how um, the bishops mandate divorce in the dioceses. Mm -hmm. Can anybody imagine, honestly, can anybody really imagine Bishop John Fisher telling Catherine of Aragon, look, Catherine, here's the thing. We're going to have a tribunal, but before you do that, I need you to go and get a divorce decree before we can even have this. This can—I don't think anybody could really imagine that happening, and yet it happens in every case in America now. So, but but your back to your your point is that so basically what what this became was is that there began to be a, a a a segment of Christianity that thought divorce was fine, and in fact Luther came along and backed it all up. And uh, there were a lot of quotes by Luther in there that I think a lot of the re- readers will find shocking, but Luther was ext- it was extraordinarily anti-Catholic, but it was also extraordinarily anti-marriage.
0: Do you think part of the um, problem in America uh, now is because we are like a Protestant-rooted country?
1: Yes, it's manifest. How do you like that? <laughs> you know, I, I think, yeah, I think that's the case. I think the problem is, is that Protestantism, essentially, one of the problems with, with Protestantism's approach to marriage was, and is, and it remains, is that Luther thought that marriage should be a, a product of the state, and effectively only the state. Yeah, God was kind of involved, but largely, this was a state product. Well, here's your problem. If it's a state product it's states to to uh bring about it's estates to terminate mm-hmm. and once you do that i mean that's bad enough it doesn't need you know i don't want to get to the whole slippery slope thing because that's bad in its face but it does open up something else well if the state feels its proper role is to be involved in the sac in marriage why not the other sacraments mm-hmm. And in fact, in 2020, the state was making that argument in large measure, right? I mean, during the time of COVID, you heard stories about people, you know, taking down, you know, there were officials taking on people's names and numbers for going to confession. Uh, There was a, I had a friend, some friends of mine had to wait like almost a year to have their baby baptized Mm -hmm. because, because people were sick. Well, we had people not getting, I mean, you, you want to talk about irony. How about this? We had people not get anointing of the sick because people were sick. So, it, it, what I'm getting at is, is that it, we talked about the symbiotic. When you start really getting into what we've seen in the last few years, mm-hmm. the symbiotic nature of the sacraments gets pretty clear. And as I point out in the book, this isn't the first time. When we had the French revolutionary government, they, the, 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 the French, uh, the, revolution, the revolutionaries sought out to rewrite catechisms. Mm-hmm they they were good at what they were doing and they were horrible but they were good at what they were doing and they realized no, we'll just rewrite the catechism so now baptism is simply and it's uh it means incorporation of the state it's got nothing to do with the trinity yeah so yeah so but but essentially to answer your question uh yes i think that is in large measure what we're seeing here because it's a state product and it's sadly the church is signing on to it with the divorce mandate
0: interesting what advice would you have to restore the same, like, respect for the sanctity of marriage in America? Like, do you have any thoughts on how Catholics can help foster that and what we should do within the church?
1: So, there's two, yeah. So, we look at there's basically two aspects there's the clergy and then the laity. So, in terms of the clergy, uh, I really believe that we need to hear from the pulpits that marriage is great, that marriage is wonderful. Um, I'm not hearing that very often. And I'm trying to figure out why that's the case because, you know, I'm a political speech writer and whenever someone contacts me to write a speech, the very first question I ask, I'm not kidding. The first question I ask is who's the audience? Mm -hmm. The first one before the topic, who's the audience? When priests give sermons, it's fairly clear who the audience is, right? It's a laity. They're not speaking to a bunch of other priests. There might be other priests in the audience, I suppose, but lar- in large measure, the audience is a lady. What does that mean? It means it's it's people who are married or people who are products of marriage, For the, you know, generally speaking, right? Why are they talking about marriage more? Why are we talking about matrimony? I'm not sure what it is, but I know that the, 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 the priests have to speak. The priests have to be, for lack of a better word, cheerleaders for marriage. Talk about why marriage is good. Talk about the heroism of marriage. Talk about the sacramentality of marriage. And I think even prior to all that, if people want to actually cut down on the number of divorces and annulments, but what about we do, start doing this? Pre should start giving sermons on what to look for in a spouse. It's a great sermon, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, and also too, it's who I should be. So if I, so if I have a sermon, if I'm, you know, a teenager, I'm just, you know, maybe starting to date or, you know, getting old enough to start dating. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I knew what sort of person I should be who's dateable and then marriable? Like talk about virtue, talk about the importance of holiness in a relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that'd be great. So we need to have that, that's, that's, I think the clergy needs to be involved in really some very basic ways. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the clergy. from the perspective, there are other ideas, too, I have in my book, but I think that'd be a good start. From the perspective of the laity, I think those of us that have strong marriages should be ready to witness to uh, people in trouble or other strong marriages or young couples. Uh, I think there should be some, you know, we should try to have some involvement um, with younger couples to, to you know, sort of guide them along the way. Some, some dioceses have that. There are some that are doing, I think, a very good job of that, of of that aspect of all this. But I think so for the lady itself, you know, for husbands and wives, as I said earlier, live sacramental lives, pray the rosary together, Um, you know, support each other, help each other in the path to holiness. These are, you know, basic things. And one last thing I would add that I think brings those two together is Back in the day, maybe, I don't know, a few decades ago, blessing homes was standard. Mm-hmm. When Lisa and I moved to Florida three and a half years ago or so, that was one of the first things we wanted to get done is, okay, let's, get a, uh, let's try to get a priest over to bless our home. It's basic. But priestly involvement with a lady, that's ideally what we want to have is, is, is both working together to support the sacraments.
0: So do you have any uh, last thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up for today?
1: So I'll leave you with one. And this is something that I think is very important if, if there's, you know, sort of one takeaway is that um, especially it's no secret that we live in a, a pornographic world, um, pornographic society, uh, which is which is dangerous to marriage at, at all its stages. Right. So I, I would say that um, we all need to develop um, a devotion to Mary. It's 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 the antidote to so many ills of our society, right? So, um, what does that mean? So that means you know, pray start with praying the rosary as a family. Um, you know, reading books about Mary, reading you know, reading together. I'm a big fan of you know, we homeschool, mm-hmm. and we're always you know, talk about theology or you know, we're praying together. I think it's so important to do that, and I think that strengthens marriages. So remember that Mary loves marriage. How do we know? Why well, have evidence? We have, we have evidence of that fact, right? Yeah. So, with Cana, when Mary says they have no wine, she realizes upon saying that if Jesus works a miracle, that begins his public ministry. In other words, that begins his road to Calvary. And yet, Mary says they have no wine. And so, I think that's a very important lesson for us that Mary loves marriage. And when I think back about the wedding feast of Cana, um, it's beautiful in so many ways, but you know, when we look at the wedding feast at Cana, we don't even know the name of the couple that was married, right? But we know this: we know that Jesus was at the center of their marriage from the beginning. And I think that the similarity between the couple at Cana and married couples today it's the same. Jesus at the center of the beginning of our uh, our marriages. As um, we're, my wife and I were married in the Eastern Catholic Church and our fir- we put on crowns and we march around that the priest leads us in a uh, procession around the gospel to point out that the gospel is at the center of our lives from the beginning and should always be but i think so we need to live you know prayerful lives um that that i think is 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 the key thing to this so uh we need to really focus on a devotion to mary uh, a devotion to prayer and I think that is a powerful way of, you know, strengthening marriages.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. I love, I love the story of the wedding piece at Cana, And that's so true that they had Christ at the center from the very beginning. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and talking about your book and just the research you've done in this area. It's a really important area for people to be aware of the problems that are going on and also just be aware that marriage is so beautiful and needs to be upheld and respected and all of that in America right now.
1: Yes. So, yeah. Thanks, Colin. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it was a good conversation. And to all of our listeners, please like, subscribe, and turn on notifications. And keep on living the culture of life. God bless.